Well, good morning, church. It is so good to be with you, and I hope you're as excited as I am to open God's Word today, because today we come to an amazing passage in the book of Esther, a passage that is full of drama, full of irony, and full of truth that will be greatly instructive for us today. So if you would, please open your Bibles to Esther chapter 6. We'll be reading chapter 6 and 7. If you don't have a Bible, uh, please feel the freedom to get up from your seat, grab one from the cart in the back. Uh, it's always important for you to be able to follow along and test uh, what I'm saying in the scriptures. Uh, but before we read this dramatic climax in the book of Esther, it will be important for me to give you a brief synopsis of where we find ourselves in this story, especially if you're joining us for the first time. Just like you kind of need like a recap before uh, an episode of your favorite TV show uh, that you've, you know, haven't seen in a week, uh, that's kind of what we need to do to kind of highlight some of the key points in our story of Esther before we read so we don't miss the depth of the meaning and instruction that God has for us today. So take this as your previously on the book of Esther. Uh, we found ourselves right in the Persian Empire during the, the reign of King Ahasuerus in the 5th century BC in the capital city of Susa. And there we find the unlikeliest of families finding their way into the halls of power. Esther, a Jewish orphan and a woman of great beauty, was taken from her home and chosen to be the new queen of Persia. But ever since then, things seem to be getting steadily worse for God's people. Mordecai, her older cousin who had raised her, discovers a plot devised by Haman, the Agagite, yes. A descendant. Well done. That was good. Yeah. Well. A descendant, right, from Israel's arch enemies. Uh, and Haman had tricked the drunken, impressionable king, Azaharis, into signing an edict to destroy all the Jews living in the empire. Now, why would Haman do this? Well, he did it. Because Mordecai would not bow down to Haman or give him the honor that he thought he was owed. So after some convincing by Mordecai, we saw Esther, under the potential threat of death, bravely approach the king in order that she might somehow convince him to revoke the genocidal edict that he signed, knowing that full well that according to Persian law, this edict could not be revoked. By God's grace, we saw Esther win the king's favor on top of that, the king quickly expresses his willingness to grant her any request, up to half his kingdom. But instead, in that moment of revealing her Jewish heritage and pleading for the salvation of her people, Esther decides to slow play her request, and instead decides to invite the king and Haman to a couple of fancy feasts. Now, while Esther's plan seems very shrewd, knowing that uh, the edict against the Jews is still months away from being implemented. Time is on her side as she sees it. But what she doesn't know is that time is running short for Mordecai. For as Haman leaves the first party, very full of wine and full of himself for being invited to this exclusive party, he sees who? But his nemesis, Mordecai. And again, Mordecai fails to recognize his greatness. So before the second feast, Haman has a 75-foot-tall wooden gallows made, which is more like maybe a big wooden spike. 
And in the morning, he is going to ask the king to impale Mordecai upon it. And so we were left wondering, will Esther's plan work? Will Mordecai be saved before it's too late? What will happen to God's promises for his people? Well, let's find out together. Follow along as I read God's word, starting in Esther chapter 6 and going through the end of chapter 7. Here's what God's word says. On that night, the king could not sleep. He gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed upon Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought which the king has worn, and the horse which the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor." Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. And Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. 
for our affliction is not compared with the loss to the king. Then King Azarus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. As Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, and the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask God's blessing upon the preaching of his word. Father, we come before you today thanking you for your holy word. What a blessing it is to have the history of your work of salvation for us to read. And so we ask that you would now instruct us and encourage us through its proclamation. Would you destroy our pride? Would you humble our spirits? And would you give us confidence that all your promises for us in Christ will surely come to pass? Holy Spirit, preach a better sermon than the one that I will preach today. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. I, like many of you, uh, most likely tonight, will be watching the Super Bowl. Uh, and if your team is not playing uh, in the big game, we can together hope just to watch a good game. And what we often mean by a good game is that we want a game that is full of drama, uh, excitement. Um, I think you'd agree that the best and most memorable Super Bowls are the ones that were filled with dramatic storylines, incredible plays, unexpected twists, and incredible, satisfying finishes. One of the most dramatic and most entertaining Super Bowls was Super Bowl 42, when the undefeated 16-0 New England Patriots were set to play the 10-6 New York Giants. Now, the big bad Patriots, who the year before were caught cheating, spying on uh, opposing coaches, were favored by 12 points in the Super Bowl, and they were one win away from completing the perfect season. If you remember, this game had everything. It had a dramatic storyline, a hated villain, an incredible catch, a helmet catch, and most importantly, a dramatic and satisfying finish as the underdog Giants scored a touchdown with 35 seconds left to pull off this surprising upset, sending Tom Brady and the Big Bad Patriots home with nothing. <laughs> now I know all you Colts fans felt justice had been served on that day. Well, this morning, we get to study a story that is filled with drama, twists of irony, and gives us a rewarding ending, leaving, again, us feeling that justice had been served as we look at this dramatic climax of the story of Esther. You know, as we have studied this amazing story gifted to us by God, my hope is that 
Uh, we don't just leave here today just simply entertained by a good story, but rather my hope is that you'll take to heart the lessons that our sovereign God has for us uh, as he teaches us through the folly and the triumph of those in our story. I've taken, if you're taking notes, I've broken down uh, our passage into two uh, main acts. Act one being Haman's humiliation in 6, 1 through 13, and then act two will be Esther's entreaty in chapters 6, 14 through 7, 10. And as we laugh at God's ironic providence and the just fall of wicked Haman, I hope that we don't overlook our own pride, but courageously respond by doing what is pleasing in God's eyes, humbling ourselves and trusting in his sovereign, perfect plan for us in Christ. With that, let's begin in the first act, Act 1, Haman's Humiliation. As we reviewed, Esther's plan to save the Jews was in motion, but she is unaware, right, uh, that Mordecai's time is running out. There seemed to be no way, at least humanly speaking, that Mordecai was going to escape Haman's fury. Yet when we are always reading God's word, we know that there is always more than meets the eye. For on the night before Haman was going to ask King Ahasuerus to hang Mordecai, we are told that on that very night, the king could not sleep. Now, we are not told explicitly why the king couldn't sleep. We are not told that he had some sort of bad dream like King Nebuchadnezzar or that, um, that kept him awake or even that he was anxious for what Esther might ask for him tomorrow at the feast. The text gives us no apparent reason for his insomnia. But as we'll see, God has a divine reason for giving Azaharis a episode of sleeplessness in Susa. Instead of ordering more wine or any of the limitless worldly pleasures at the king's disposal to help him sleep, the king orders for the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, to be read before him. Now, I don't know what helps you fall asleep uh, at night, um, but I got to imagine having someone read to you government records might just do the trick. Um, as his servants, right, are reading the records uh, of uh, his empire, it just so happens that the story of Mordecai and his foiling of a plot against the king's life that we read back in chapter 2 is read before the king. But as the scripture records and the Persian court records show that nothing was done to honor Mordecai for his good deed. And as we see, the record of Mordecai's actions did not help the king sleep but caused him much distress. Why? Why would the king care about Mordecai's honor? Well, in those days, being a king was kind of a dangerous job. If word got out to your servants and to your subjects that you could foil a plot against the king's life and get no recognition for it, given no reward, well, what motivation would anyone have for risking their life for the king if another plot was discovered? So therefore, the king, motivated again by his own self-preservation, immediately realizes his oversight and calls for someone in the court to help him remedy the situation. And who just so happens to be in the court that very morning? Look at verse 4. Now Haman had just entered the court, outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that had prepared for him. And the king's gentleman told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, 
what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Now, the king has clearly caught Haman with his head in the clouds, uh, very full of himself, and maybe you can even understand why, right? Haman has just been to a feast with the king and queen, and he's about to go to another one. Haman thinks he is soon to put an end to his nemesis Mordecai, and now the king wants to see him first thing in the morning. Oh, what luck. Great. Yet in a wonderful moment of irony, you'll notice that the king conveniently leaves out the name of the man whom the king delights to honor. Just as Haman left out the ethnicity of the people he wanted the king to destroy back in chapter 3. And in his arrogance, Haman does not ask the king uh, who the king wants to honor, but assumes that the king is planning to honor him. Even though, right, the king has already made him second in command. Now, what does Haman think should be done for him? He doesn't ask for power or riches, since he already has all those things. Rather, he desires to be treated like a king. He wants to play dress up. For, if you couldn't be the king, then the next best thing in Haman's eyes was to look like the king to wear the king's robes, to ride the king's horse, to wear the king's crown, so that everyone could look at him and treat him like the king. For Haman, what better way to declare victory over Mordecai than for himself to be paraded around the city while Mordecai, his enemy, hung in shame on the gallows. And just as Haman, though, finishes describing his best day ever, the king says to Haman, Great plan. Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Can you just imagine the look on Haman's face when Mordecai's name comes out of the king's mouth? His perfect day, made especially for him, has just been given to his archenemy, Mordecai the Jew. And not only that, but Haman himself has to be the one to dress Mordecai in the king's robe and walk around the city shouting to all who were there, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Now, this is not in the text, but I can imagine Mordecai telling Haman as he's sitting on the horse and prayed around the city, Come on, Haman, say it like you mean it. Say it, say it like you mean it, buddy. Say it like you mean it. Now, I, I think we are really, truly meant to laugh at the hilarious irony uh, and the total reversal of fortunes for Mordecai and Haman. Uh, all of these events set in motion. Why? Because of one sleepless night from a pagan king. Now, you could conclude this is just right, one hilarious coincidence but I think the text gives us a clue that we are meant to see that this is God's providential hand purposely protecting his people from their enemies. Look at verse 13 with me. Haman has just gone home crying to his family and his friends, telling them what happened. And his wife says to him, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. So his wife while not being, maybe being the best encourager in, the, his, in his morning, seems to conclude that because Mordecai is a Jew, which is literally translated from the seed of the Jews, 
There was no way Haman would win this fight with Mordecai, for his, his doom is sure. So I think this would imply that his wife has some awareness of Yahweh and the things that he had done for the Jewish people in history. Maybe she had heard of the stories of Daniel or of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or maybe even the Exodus. Either way, it seems that they interpreted Haman's humiliation and Mordecai's exaltation as a sign that Haman was up against not just Mordecai, but a power much greater than Mordecai that stood behind him that he could not overcome. Therefore, if a pagan Persian can see God's hand at work, we who have been given eyes of faith ought to see it as well. We who have been brought into the family of God through the blood of Christ by faith should take comfort and be instructed in seeing God's providential hand even over one sleepless night of a pagan king. I think we first ought to take comfort in God's sovereignty in a couple of ways. First, um, we ought to take comfort that he reigns over the authorities on earth, even pagan rulers like Azahurus and Haman. Uh, in our year 2024, which undoubtedly will be filled with political drama in our country, we must remember to take comfort that God is sovereign over all of human history, that God is the one who sets up kings and brings them down. He's the one who sets up presidents and takes them down, and he is working all things together according to his good and perfect ends, even if for us it doesn't feel that way. Proverbs 21.1 reminds us of this, which says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. There is no king or ruler on this earth who ultimately dictates the course of the future. That authority only belongs to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Yet I, unfortunately, uh, oftentimes see many Christians given over to fear and anxiety when faced with the future that feels very unstable. Now hear me when I say this. Yes, by all means, we should care and we should pray about happens, what happens in our country. And yes, we have to work hard for the advancement of justice and all the spheres of influence God has given us. But we ought to do so knowing that even if we fail, or our hopes for our earthly home are not realized this side of heaven, that God's plans never fail. His kingdom will come and his will will be done, even if it means taking away the sleep of a pagan king. Secondly, if God directs a pagan king's sleep for his purposes, I hope that we would be a people that believe that he can and does direct the seemingly insignificant trials of our own lives as well. Uh, my hope has always been for this church, and maybe you've heard me say this before, is that I hope we are a church that always is on the lookout for evidences of God's grace, always looking for signs that his providential hand is guiding us through trials uh, of this life, um, instead of looking at our lives as just a series of random coincidences. And I think it's natural for us, right, to see life, maybe the everyday trials of, of life, whether it be a sleepless night or being overlooked for your good work at your job or being stuck in traffic, uh, seeing these things as nothing but inconvenient, random coincidences. But I think this passage, along with the whole book of Esther and the testimony of the scriptures, provides with numerous examples that are teaching us that the insignificant moments uh, to us can often be used by God for his very good purposes. 
Now, I want you to hear me on this. It, this is not simply an encouragement for us to look on the bright side of hard things, but rather a call to trust that your heavenly Father cares about even the little details of your life. God may not often reveal to you the full scope of what he's doing behind the scenes when you're stuck in traffic or you lose your job or you go another sleepless night caring for a newborn, but we would do well to trust his character and live as those who believe what the scriptures teach, that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So in Act 1, we have seen God, in his providence, save Mordecai from imminent death and humiliates Haman in a very hilarious way. But as we know, the king still does not know that his own edict has sentenced the man he just honored, as well as his own, as his own queen, to destruction. Esther has not revealed her identity and has yet, not yet, asked the king to stay his hand which then brings us to Act 2, Esther's Entreaty. Esther's Entreaty. At the beginning of the scene, Haman, right, he is still licking his wounds with his family after a very humiliating morning, when suddenly the king's servants arrive to bring Haman to the feast prepared, prepared for by Esther. Uh, he may have had a rough morning, but at least, right, he's still the king's number two, and he's got a feast to maybe cheer him up. Well, we read that after the second day of feasting, Esther has still not revealed her identity until King Azahurus, filled with wine, asks for her request, up to half his kingdom. And this time, Esther does not delay, but shrewdly makes her entreaty. Look at chapter 7, verse 3 in Esther's request. She says, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. For if we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. What does Esther ask for? Not gold, not power, not her freedom, but she asks for her life and for the life of her people to be spared. I want you to notice a few things about Esther's request. First, Esther takes a humble posture towards the king, unlike Haman, who uses no political pleasantries uh, and showed no humility. Second, you'll notice that she chooses her words very carefully. You'll notice she doesn't actually directly reveal that she's a Jew, but more kind of indirectly, as she quotes the very edict verbatim um, that we read about in chapter 3, verse 13. She's kind of allowing the king in his mind to connect the dots. Furthermore, she makes her appeal not to the king's understanding of right and wrong, but rather to his own self-interest. She reasons that the king would incur quite a big loss if her people were destroyed, maybe even losing a lot of slave labor. You can tell she's very careful not to put blame on the king himself, 
who is undoubtedly, he's the one responsible for his foolish error. But she makes sure that she turns the king's fury towards the man who was the brains behind the idea. Uh, as as Ahuris, as we've seen, has been manipulated by many of his advisors in the past, Esther successfully stirs up his anger as the king now demands who would have done such a thing. Again, the irony here is he is the one who has done such a thing, but he asks, right? Who is he? And he, you can tell there's a series of questions here. You know, he, he, he's beside himself. Who is he? And where is he? And who dared to do this? I think we're meant to maybe even echo, uh, if you remember, Nathan, the prophet Nathan's confrontation with King David when he declares, you the man. Esther reveals that the man behind the wicked plot is none other than a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman, the man sitting right next to them. Again, you can imagine Haman's face uh, in that very moment. Haman's day has had now gone from humiliating to now horrifying. Not only has he lost his battle with Mordecai, but the overreach of his hatred of Mordecai has landed him now in the crosshairs of a very angry king. Now, if you look at the story, it's kind of maybe surprising. The king gets up in his rage and he goes to his garden, uh, leaving Haman and Esther alone. Now, maybe he needed some fresh air. Uh, or, or more likely, I think the king is realizing that he was the one who has been duped into sentencing his own wife to death, and now he's kind of stuck. How can he punish Haman for a decree he himself has personally made? Wouldn't that make him look pretty darn weak? Uh, and like we've seen before, he really cares about his reputation. Yet upon his return from his little garden walk, Haman has provided him a way to save face. Now, uh, Persian court protocol would insist that Haman and Esther, the queen, could not be alone together. Yet Haman knows that his only chance of survival is begging the queen for mercy, which again is ironic because just as Haman's wife predicted that Haman, who once was enraged that a Jew would not bow to him, is now bowing at the feet of a Jew, begging for his life. The king walks in on Haman pleading with Esther and conveniently, I think, interprets this scene as Haman trying to assault the, his queen. I, I don't think that's what he was doing, but I think he's like, oh, I've got my excuse. He, the, Haman has now given him an adequate excuse to execute him right then and there. Not for being tricked into a genocidal edict, but for Haman's apparent impropriety towards his queen. And in one last moment of tragic irony, our scene ends with a fitting ending as a servant happily suggests to the king, oh, hey, uh, hey, hey, king, Haman, you know, he just built uh, uh, some big tall gallows. How, you can hang him on, on those that he planned for Mordecai. And the king agrees. What a incredible dramatic turn of events, kind of like an interception at the goal line to lose a Super Bowl. Just think about it, right? A few days prior, Haman was dreaming of being seen by all and given the greatest honor by the king, but now receives the wrath of the king, impaled upon a wooden stake for all to see. As Haman's life subsided, 
the king's wrath was abated and the great enemy of the Jews was defeated. Now, what applications can we draw from this amazing story of God's deliverance? Well, I want us to just look at the three main characters in this act and see what God might instruct us from their examples. First, let's just look at King Ezahurus briefly. Aren't we glad, church, that we do not serve a king like him? A king who is given too much wine, who's easily manipulated and can be bought off with a large amount of silver. Friends, our God is not fickle. He is not unruly or manipulated by riches of this world because guess what? The whole world is his. Our God is immutable. He is unchanging. He is perfect in wisdom and his judgments. We can trust that when he writes a decree, which are found in the pages of this book, it comes from his heart and not determined by someone else. And they're all written for our good as we await his kingdom to come. Brothers and sisters, you can trust your sovereign God that he is good and he has given us good and clear instructions for us. Second, let's look at Esther. If you've been with us in this series, it's, I think it's right for us to recognize her growth in character. She has showed great courage in this scene as she identifies with her people in front of a man who could dispose of her at any command. Uh, and I think we ought to be challenged by her example and ask ourselves, one, are we growing in our own character and trust in the Lord? And are we willing to step out in faith and identify with Jesus when we are called to make a stand for him? Even if it might mean that we might lose something very significant. Uh, we certainly may not be called in our time to suffer under the threat of death, but we'd be ignorant to say that that can't happen for it is happening around the world. I just read this week that in places like Nigeria, uh, 4,100 Christians were killed in 2023. While we may not face death uh, in America for being a Christian, uh, the question, big question is, are we willing to lose maybe jobs or promotions or relationships in order to identify with Christ and follow his commands? I have a friend who, who grew up uh, in, a, in a Muslim home and his dad at first didn't seem uh, to mind that he was going to church, uh, but when he was baptized, a public picture of identifying with Jesus in his death and resurrection, his dad and his whole family disowned him. His identifying with Jesus cost him dearly. So church, what are we willing to lose for the sake of identifying with Christ? Like Esther, I think we can implement some shrewdness with how we talk about Jesus with our family and neighbors, but be careful you don't confuse shrewdness with cowardice. We have to ask ourselves, are we being kind of an incognito Christians in our workplaces or in our families, or are we willing to bear the reproach of men for the sake of Christ? And I know I do, this, I do this mental gymnastics in my mind too. It's like, you know, the, oh, this is not a great time to bring this up or this wouldn't be a convenient time. And I may say, oh, I'm just trying to be shrewd. But oftentimes I know in my heart, ah, maybe I just don't want to have that conversation right now. I'd rather have a quiet plane ride. I'd rather have a quiet something. Uh, so just be aware of that in our own hearts and ask ourselves, are we ready to identify with Jesus no matter what the costs? Like Esther, we can trust God's sovereign hand to guide us as we step out in faith, trusting that even if we mess up, 
or don't express ourselves perfectly, that God is pleased to use imperfect people like Esther and like you and me to advance his purposes in this world. Lastly, let's look at Haman. Haman's story is not just one of hilarious irony, but serves as a warning to all who had set themselves up against God and his anointed. If you would look at Psalm chapter 2, I put it up on the screen behind me. It says this, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves against the rulers and take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Ha-ha, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. For no nation, no ruler has the power to overthrow God's plan for his king. And Haman, we have here, is a walking illustration of a well-known proverb, right? That pride goes before the fall. And what is pride? Pride is essentially self-worship. And Haman's worship of himself was in direct opposition to God and his purposes. So God saw it fitting to humble Haman in the most hilarious of circumstances. And we laugh at Haman, but do we realize how silly we look when we are given over to our own pride? like a toddler ordering around their parents, or even Haman wanting to play dress up as the king. This is what we look like when we walk in pride before our holy God. When we are proud, we are not so subtly seeking to advance our own kingdom, our own purposes. We are participating in a self-worship and setting ourselves against the plans and the purposes of God. Sure, our pride may not look as exaggerated as Haman's did, but our pride shows up still the same. How does it show up? It shows up when we are consumed by what others think of us. When we get defensive and blame shift when we get caught in sin. It shows itself when we seek to control everything around us and when we fail to pray. It shows up when we manipulate others into giving into our own desires, or when we are slow to admit our own sins, minimizing them, but instead maximizing the sins of others to make ourselves look better. Pride rears its ugly head when we pass judgment on God, when we think he's being unfair or not acting according to our will. It's all pride, and it's a deadly threat to our souls. And Scripture, scripture often warns of, of the end of our pride. Psalm 31, 23, the Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. The story of Haman reminds us that our pride will always end in our humiliation. For God alone is worthy of our worship. We may think that we can get away with it. We may think we can steal some of God's glory or trick him like Haman did to his king, but let this story be a warning to us all that sooner or later our pride will be exposed as the foolishness that it is. Whether graciously in this life with the opportunity to repent of it and turn from it, or when we stand before 
the judgment seat of God at the end of days. Therefore, instead of clothing ourselves with pride as Haman did, we must instead clothe ourselves with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We must pray that God would show us our pride and be ready to repent and walk in humility. Church, may we be a people that are known by our humility. Why? Because we follow a Savior, Jesus, who humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross, that we may trust in his providence in our own lives and live for his glory and not our own. The truth is, friends, we all are like Haman. We deserve death. We deserve to be impaled on a tree because of our pride and our offensiveness against God. Yet, friends, our God did not leave us blinded to our sin, but what did he do? He sent his only son to be hung on a wooden tree so that proud sinners like you and me could be set free and eat at the king's table. Friends, as Jesus' life subsided, God's wrath was abated, and the enemy of God's people, the devil, was defeated. Hallelujah, friends. What a Savior we have. Do you know this Savior? Have you humbled yourself before him? Have you trusted in his great name and his salvation that he has won for you? Friends, in a moment, we're going to participate in a meal that reminds us of the humble sacrifice of Christ that was necessary for God's righteous wrath to be abated for proud people like you and me. And at the Lord's table, we are reminded of the greatest story, the most stunning story in all of human history. At the cross of Christ, we see the greatest irony in human history, that the worst thing to ever happen in human history, the murder of the perfect, humble Son of God, was also the greatest thing to happen in human history, that Christ took upon himself the just wrath of God for his people so that our story would not end like Haman's, but like Christ's, sharing in his death, but also sharing in his resurrection that we may enjoy eternal life with him. In a moment after I pray, the elements are gonna be passed out and I would ask that you would please take time to pray. Ask the Lord to reveal your own pride in your own life and confess the ways in which you have lived for your kingdom and not for Christ. Then as we partake together as a symbol of our unity in the spirit, Remember that as surely as you taste the bread and taste the cup, so surely has God's wrath been satisfied on your behalf because of Christ. And friend, if you're here today and, and you've never humbled yourself before a holy God who made you, if you've never surrendered your pride in your life to King Jesus, I would ask that you would not participate in the meal we're partaking in, but instead in your heart, fall on your knees cry out to God for mercy. And our God promises that he will answer. For all who come to him in faith, he will never cast out. Let's pray and prepare our hearts. Father, we acknowledge that this is your world and you are sovereign over all creation. And so we bow ourselves before your throne asking that you would help. Help us to respond to your word as we ought. Would you expose our pride and show us where we have not given you the glory that is due to your name. We thank you for not leaving us in our pride, but sending your own son, Jesus, to cover our sin 
and show us the path of humility that will one day lead to exaltation with you. As we partake of your table, would you help us to partake in this meal in a manner worthy of your son, worthy of the great love which you've shown us as we long for the day that we sit in your presence at your table. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.